Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Um, How you guys doing? You good? All right, cool. So glad you're with us if you're online, um, unfiltered radio all over Florida and beyond. Uh, wherever you're watching, listening, so glad you're with us. We're in part two of the series called Counterculture uh, that Angela already set up. And really, we're just answering a couple questions. And if you weren't here last week, I would love if you could go back and podcast that on any podcast catcher, watch it or whatever, and kind of catch up to where we're at in this series. But we're really um, answering a couple questions around culture. And specifically in our culture, there's so much polarization, there's so much division, there's so much chaos, there's so much uncertainty. Really the question is this, is how does our theology, which just is what we think about God, how does that intersect with our culture? And specifically the question is this, what should we do as followers of Jesus? And what should we be known for, that's maybe a better question, as followers of Jesus, and specifically the church, wherever you're at, whether you're a part of this church or maybe you're part of another church. Like, what should we do? What is the way forward? And what I wanted to do in this series is talk about stuff, but what I don't want to do is just talk about stuff. I want to do stuff. And so Angela just mentioned it. The big application to this series is our incredible opportunity to unleash a wave of generosity on our community through give, serve, love. I'll talk about that again at the end. But last week, we launched our initiative to raise $50,000, and our real goal is 100% participation. Because I think that generosity doesn't just change communities, it changes you. And when we offer unbridled, no strings attached generosity, you probably know this, it changes stuff. And it tears down walls unlike anything else can. And so we're gonna give every dollar of that away. We vetted the best organizations. All the needs are on our website. You can scan um, the code that will appear on the screen and get all the information about it, uh, which I'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, but this is our opportunity to give, serve, and love. And the, the why is really, really clear. It's the gospel or the good news of Jesus. And that is that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. Now, what I wanna tell you is I wanna land kind of on the serving part of it today and then do not miss the next two weeks. I may make you a little uncomfortable. I may make you nervous. I may bother you. Hopefully I will inspire you, but I kind of really wanna dig down and talk practically about this whole tension and dynamic. But here's what I wanna talk about today. It is almost impossible to ramp up the emotion or really the tension that Jesus entered into when he entered into planet Earth. And one of the things that's hard for us to understand as people in the West, and maybe you live in different areas and you're watching, but so many of us in the West are part of the United States, it's hard for us to get the reality that Jesus showed up into a culture where people did not have intrinsic value. Like Jesus showed up into a culture in the first century where the whole idea that everybody matters to God was not assumed. 
Now, here's one of the things that's interesting about our culture. Even if you don't believe in God, you're like, if there is a God, I think God should care about people. Or if you're kind of um, agnostic, we have many that attend our church and God's kind of out there somewhere. At some level, you wanna believe that God cares or maybe you divorce it from theology and God altogether and somehow you believe there's not a God but you should still care, which that's a whole nother thing because that's a contradictory worldview and survival of the fittest. Why should you care about justice or compassion or love? But that's fine. But, but my whole point is this, is that, that God should be in such a way or, or, or live in such a way that, that every person matters to him. And what is elementary to us was not something that was elementary to the ancient world. In fact, some of you walked away from the church because the whole idea that everybody matters to God didn't seem to be practiced or lived out among other people who claimed to be followers of Jesus. And when Jesus showed up in the first century, that was the first century world. In a pantheon of gods where the gods didn't really care about people. In fact, slavery was not just practiced, slavery was assumed. Now, even in our horrific um, history as a nation in slavery, we still can't imagine a culture quite like this where it wasn't so much based on race. The slavery of the ancient world in the first century was actually a slavery in which anybody could be a slave because everybody was considered property among their theology about the gods. The gods didn't really care about people. And in fact, anybody... Because everybody was property, anybody could be a slave. If you got injured, you could end up being sold into slavery because you couldn't provide for yourself. Or if you got invaded by another nation, your family could end up in slavery. Or, or if you, know, you were in some kind of situation where you were in debt, you didn't just get annoying phone calls all the time, you maybe became a slave. You became a property of somebody else. And that was the ancient world. And it wasn't just practice. Again, it was assumed. This is just how the world works. This is how things operate. Every individual is just property. And into that, Jesus entered this Greco-Roman world where the gods did not love, the gods did not care. There was no ethic of generosity. In fact, the theology of the pantheon of gods was just this, that there was no meaning behind individuals, that the human beings were created just like any other part of nature. And in fact, the sole purpose of their creation was to, to serve or to be a slave of the lazy gods. Like that was the whole purpose of humanity. And so the gods didn't care about you. So you didn't care about other people. It's why child sacrifice in the first century was fairly common because everybody was property. Nobody was really valued. It's why might made right was just assumed because they were just doing as their fathers in heaven did. That's what the pantheon of gods, gods did. And the slavery paradigm was so entrenched that the hierarchical system was everywhere. There was even a hierarchical system, if you can believe this, among slaves. You had household slaves. You had um, those who worked in the field, field slaves. You had salt mine slaves. I mean, the, the paradigm was so heavy and so entrenched, you even had a hierarchy among the gods. You've heard me talk about this before. Like if you were um, a little bit upper class, then you got a better God. You served Zeus, you served Jupiter. If you were a wealthy, healthy, prosperous male, you got the best gods. If you were a slave or if you were lower class or you didn't have a lot of influence, you got a JV God, couldn't even do anything with your crops. You got Frank and Frank could do nothing for you, right? <laughs> Everything was hierarchical. Everything was based on this idea that humanity doesn't really matter. And Jesus shows up in Galilee into that kind of system and into that kind of culture and into that kind of thinking. 
In fact, when Jesus shows up, he is, he is moved right in the middle of this delicate tension between Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities. And basically, the Jewish religious leaders, their sole job was to try to keep peace and to keep the masses in line so that they could keep their titles and their positions and their expense accounts with the Roman Empire. And if anything went off the rails, then they would lose their authority and they would lose their position. And in fact, the Jewish religious leaders were in a position where they started to use the law of God as basically a means to let people know their place in society. So if you were a religious leader, prophet started to overcome people. And it was all about making sure that women understood their role, which was they had none, making sure that slaves understood where they were at in society, making sure that children knew that they weren't really full people, making sure that Samaritans who they viewed and characterized as half-breeds understood they had no place in their society that if you are a leper, forget about it. Their sole goal was to actually to manipulate and and use the law of God in order to keep them in line and let them know for sure that God's favor rested on healthy, wealthy, prosperous males. That was the culture. That was what Jesus entered into, where compassion was considered weakness because that was the viewpoint of the gods that they served that people valued strength, they valued wealth, they valued your last name more than anything else. Everybody was playing for the back of the jersey. All of life, all of society was based around those things. And though we experience some of that in part, we can't imagine a world where the entire world was based around that. And then Jesus comes, comes along and into that, he introduces a culture shifting paradigm that no overstatement would change everything. In fact, everywhere Jesus went, with everything he taught once he started his public ministry at 30 years old, Jesus spoke as if all people had dignity and all people mattered to God. Jesus began to teach everywhere he went and he began to model that compassion was actually a sign of strength. And I'm just telling you, in an ancient Greco-Roman world that was unheard of, compassion was not strength. Jesus began to teach radically upside down kingdom ideas that meekness was not weakness. And in fact, one day that ethic would change the world. It was Jesus who began to introduce and teach people that there was a huge difference between intrinsic value and ascribed value. Ascribed value said this, you have value based on your lineage. You have certain value based on your gender. You have certain value based on how healthy you are and how you look. You have certain value based on what village or hometown you grew up in. And Jesus came along to go, no, no, no. It's not about ascribed value. I'm introducing a worldview where every single individual has intrinsic value, where I look at you and you have some of me as God in you because you're made in the image of God. So regardless of your lineage, regardless of your leprosy, regardless of your gender, regardless of what village you came from, regardless of the fact that you're not in with the Roman authorities, you have extraordinary intrinsic value that you did not do anything to earn. I bestowed it on you because you are made in my image. And I'm telling you, that idea, thanks for the clap and a half, that idea (laughs) was uniquely Christian. It was uniquely, because they weren't known as Christians. 
uniquely a part of the followers of the way. I don't know if you know this. You don't have to believe in God. This is just historical. It did not exist before Jesus touched down. It wasn't there. And in fact, it wasn't universal. And it wasn't natural. I mean, come on. Nature is violent. Nature is beautiful. Nature is violent. In fact, Paul writes in Romans that actually nature itself is waiting for a day of redemption. It's not as it should be. And you already know that. But come on, nature is violent. Isn't it true? Like you, as offensive as this may seem, you are not inherently good. You, because I know me, so I'll just speak for you. You actually have to overcome some of your own demons in order to be good sometimes. It is not natural. It is not universal. You do not automatically move in that direction. And Jesus shows up to go, I am introducing a culture-shifting, world-changing paradigm. In fact, when he begins to speak about it, his audience was stunned. Here's what I love about this. I was going back through these verses. One of Jesus' most famous TED Talks, Matthew 5, this is like his big sermon on the mount deal. And as Jesus is talking, you go back and look at these words and and you see that that it has changed so much of culture and society and yet so much of his words are still countercultural. I still read certain phrases of these lines that Jesus teaches and goes, I don't know who actually does that. Here's what Jesus said, sorry, Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who asks you. And right there, like that's just, that's pretty elementary, but I'm like, well, it depends on who's asking me. Depends on whether they're responsible or not. And quite honestly, if I'm not in church and giving you the real answer, it depends on if I like them or not. <laughs> give to the one who asks you. And then, but this is Jesus' otherworldly idea of what it was gonna look like to follow him and what he was introducing in planet Earth. He says this, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And you're like, well, what if they don't pay me back? Like, what if they take advantage of me? What if, what if, what if? And Jesus is like, yeah, it doesn't matter. In fact, if that happens and they take advantage of you and they, they don't repay you and they don't do what they said that they were gonna do, he's actually gonna say in a few minutes, that's perfect. You're like, no, that's not perfect. That's not the way the world works. That's not how you allow somebody else to treat you. No, he's He's like, no, no, in my kingdom, with what I'm doing, that's actually an incredible opportunity. That's perfect. If they borrow and don't pay back, if they don't reciprocate, if there's no quid pro quo, that is an incredible opportunity. It's perfect. And you're like, Jesus, you're insane. (laughs) Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, again, to us, like, God thing or not, and if you're investigating and tuning in and you're not sure about all this, I say this all the time, but I'm I'm so grateful. And whether you walk away and believe what we believe or not, it's what I already said. You are made in the image of God. You have value whether you believe what we believe or not. So the fact that you're investigating is incredible. But in first century, um, even though most of us believe in God or not, we would say, no, 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 love your enemy. And I mean, maybe like try to do good to your neighbor. In the first century, that wasn't the common idiom. In fact, the scribes had made up a bunch of stuff. And one of the things that they made up from the Old Testament was they assumed that since the directive was to love your neighbor, well, that's a good thing, but it just makes sense if you love your neighbor, there's some other people you should probably hate. Like, that's just how the world works. I'm gonna love you. And then by definition, there's gotta be some kind of dividing. Well, I'll hate you. And Jesus like, you've heard it said. And the reason he said that is because they had all heard it said. Everybody, this is crazy, everybody in this culture just assumed, no, no, you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. But I tell you, basically, what you were told was wrong. Yeah, yeah, but my mom, your mom was wrong. 
Yeah, but in Jewish Sunday school, your Jewish Sunday school teacher was wrong. Yeah, but they said in the Torah, no, 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 they interpreted the Torah wrong. I'm telling you, everybody who told you this was wrong. Because I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let me rewind that and just give it one more pass. But I tell you, this is where the first century Jesus movement, upside down kingdom, still confronts us in the most uncomfortable ways because this has not gotten any easier. And honestly, you read this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who does that? No, 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 for real. Just throw out for a second, because I know you are so used to the church culture where you come in and you say the right words, and some of you are really proficient. You say amen at the right times. Most of you guys don't even talk, but like some of you who do, you clap at certain times, you know the game, you know the answers. And let's just get real for a second. Who does that? Like if we were to be really honest, I'd be really honest, you don't pray for your friends half the time. In fact, if you, were to, if you were to like bundle up all of the prayers over the last year and all of those prayers would be answered, you and a couple of your family members and maybe the dude at work who's struggling and your heart just goes after, they'd be the only people who'd be better off. No, for real. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And, and Jesus is introducing this brand new paradigm. But again, the question is like, does anybody do that? Like, do you pray for that boss that you absolutely cannot stand? Like, do you pray for that individual that has caused so much hurt over the last eight years? You're trying to unwind things for your family. You don't know if you ever, ever get through it. A lot of therapy, a lot of counseling. Like, do, do you pray for the people to your right, to your left, for the people that don't agree with you at all? Like, I mean, legitimately pray for them, not pray for their judgment or their punishment or their repentance. <laughs> it's a little caveat because I know exactly that's what, yes I do like, no that's not what we're talking about <laughs> but like do you, do you pray do you pray for that guy in your neighborhood and this doesn't seem like persecution but your OCD tendencies like he hasn't edged his lawn in four years <laughs> like that individual that has has handed you so much hurt, you didn't ask for it, you didn't do anything to deserve it, but you have it. Like, come on. What if we just did that? Forget all the rest. <laughs> Forget the seven things that you need to work on or the 10 things that we could talk about or the 12-week series on this is the way for. What if we just did that? What if we just did that one thing? Listen, here's what Jesus knows, which is why Jesus is confronting us with this. If you begin to pray regularly for your enemy, and he's not talking about, there's a much broader context. This is not just enemy of somebody's trying to kill you, somebody's trying to persecute you, which in first century, that applied. This is just talking about anybody where you feel like you've been wronged, where you've been hurt, where you are struggling, you're struggling with them. It is a broad category. Jesus knows if we began to pray for the people who feel like our enemy, guess what's going to happen over time? you will feel differently about them. Just try it. Some of us have never tried it. You begin to pray every day for your enemy, your attitude begins to change. And do you know who your attitude over time will begin to mirror because this is what prayer does? Your father 
in heaven. And we're like, well, okay, what, what average person does that? And Jesus is going, I, I didn't create the average movement. I'm asking you to be different. I'm asking you to go first. I'm asking you to look at the political divides to your left and to your right. I'm asking you to look to the people that you cannot understand. I'm asking you to look across the room at the individuals who have berated you. I'm asking you to look at the individuals who are never gonna give you any respect and you think they are threatening everything that you hold valuable, but you are a follower of Jesus. So I'm asking you to lead and to live differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody else loves their neighbors and hates their enemies. You have not been invited into any movement. You are a follower of Jesus. So love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That, and you're like, that we may be scorned and ridiculed and look weak. No, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Basically, all Jesus is saying is this, that you would be like your father in heaven. First century culture, as he's writing this, they are being like their fathers in heaven that didn't give a crap about people. I want you to be like your father in heaven, like father, like child. Why? Because that's how God operates. And then verse 45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Basically, this is just this common principle that, that everybody in humanity, I mean, there's, there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of bad, there's a world that's in chaos because of sin, there's also a lot of good. And you benefit from the good of God's creation, whether you believe or not. Reigns on the just and the unjust. You experience beauty whether you believe God or not. You, you sit on a beach with good wine and a sunset and, and like you either acknowledge that there is something deeper beyond that or you just enjoy it as something happening in the moment, but either way you're impacted by God's common grace, by what God has given to all of creation. And what he's saying in this moment is, I want you to do for other people the way that I have done for you. I want you to figure out how to do the same, meaning bless those who bless you and bless those who don't bless you. Bless those who bless you and bless those who don't bless you. Now, at this point, you're like, dude, this is exactly what I would expect a preacher to say. Like, this is what people who stand up on stages and talk about Bible verses and only work one day a week. So how do you know anything about the real world and anything that's going on? And I get all of that, I understand. And even if I only work one day a week, if that's really what's true and I don't know any, you're right, it's true. I would never ask you to do this. I would never write this. I'd never make this up. Like, I, I'm not asking you to do any of this. This is Jesus to these, these guys in the first century and, and to subsequent generations to all of us to go, listen, ultimately, after he would say this little message, after this little Sermon on the Mount TED Talk, he would eventually walk away and set his face toward Jerusalem. And Jesus would knowingly and willingly go to the cross to suffer at the hands of perfected Roman persecution, 
a perfected art form in their mind to, in order to make people suffer. And it was not by accident. It was not because Jesus had his life taken from him. It's because Jesus willingly gave up his life because for anybody to have forgiveness and redemption, blood had to be shed and Jesus would become the final sacrifice for all sins. And he goes to the cross after living a perfect life we couldn't live and died the death that all of humanity should have died for past, present, and future dysfunction. And and then three days later, he walked up out of a grave to punctuate and validate everything that he said about his life. And in this moment, he's going, I died in excruciating death so that in history, you would know I am for you. And now I am asking you to do the same for other people around you. That's the way to those words. That's who's asking you, asking us. I want you I want you to bless those who bless you and I actually want you to bless those who don't bless you. And then verse 46, if you love those who love you, I, this is so powerful. What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Not, okay, just real quick. I've said this before, but this is astonishing to me. Maybe you've always missed this. All throughout the Bible, it'll create these categories and Jesus would do it himself where he's like, the all, all of them were gathered. There, there was the sinners and there was the tax collectors which I don't know if there was a meeting at some point where all of the sinners and the thugs and the murderers were like, listen, I know that things have gone off the rails for our life. We are not gonna be included in the same category as a tax collector. So like <laughs> sinners, tax collectors, they're on their own. Tax collectors were the worst individual in that society. So I'm not gonna ask you to call out names or I'm not gonna give you examples because that'd be incredibly dangerous. But think of like the worst individual you can imagine. Think about the, most the person who's done the most horrific things you could ever imagine. A group, a person, an individual. No examples are needed, but something comes, somebody comes to your mind. There's no way, because like tax collectors, that means nothing to us. It, it was huge to them. What, what's that individual? What is that person? Because here's what Jesus is saying in this moment. The worst individual you can imagine. The most horrific person you can imagine. Don't you think they love the people that love them. And don't you think that they hate the people that hate them? And Jesus is going, you are no better. You are not any different. The person that you look at and despise, you have something in common. You both function in terms of the ways of this world and I'm introducing an upside down kingdom where you don't get to operate the same any longer. You'll be hurt the same way. You'll be persecuted the same way. You'll be misjudged the same way. But you won't respond the same way. And then he says this in verse 47. And if you greet only your own people, your tribe, like that's my group, that's my people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Basically what he's saying is, listen, in your culture, wherever you find yourself, you should look different. You should respond different. People should be able to look at the followers of Jesus, the church, and go, there is something different about those people. You know what the greatest tragedy, tragedy, I think, of this cultural moment for the capital T, capital C church is that in many cases, there is no distinction. We don't look any different. We say all the same things, 
We proliferate all the same anger. We leverage all the same discord. We create all the same division. We treat and respond and rebuke like everybody else. We are so bent on making a point that we have lost all of our influence in order to actually make a difference in our culture. And Jesus is like, hey, however you define pagans, the pagans do that. (laughs) The rest of culture does that. People who have no idea there's a God function that way. You are followers of Jesus, i.e. you should do more than other people. You should get noticed for how well you treat treat people who do not treat you well. So if you are in that place, if you feel like you're in a cultural moment where that is the case, if you feel like you're in a family where that's going on right now, if you feel you're at other people uh, that you're next to in cubicles where that's the kind of stuff that's happening, Jesus is going, that is an incredible opportunity. You have been uniquely positioned there. You are a follower of Jesus and I've already shown you the way. I want you to get noticed by how you treat other people who do not treat you well. And it'll look crazy, it'll look countercultural, but that is my kingdom. And then he says this, verse 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, there's two applications of this. The first one is this, the gospel application, which just means good news of Jesus. On one hand, he's saying, if you want to have a relationship with God, here's what it looks like, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You're like, I cannot do that. Exactly, you need a savior. That's the first application. But there's another application to this. What he's saying is, the way most of you have defined spiritual maturity have nothing to do with spiritual maturity. If you wanna know what it's like to, in this context, in this setting, around this idea specifically, don't take it outside this context. If you wanna know what it looks like to be perfect, which all he's really saying is, you wanna know what it looks like to be mature, to be godly, to be godlike, to model the behavior and the character of your father in heaven. You wanna know what that, it's not about not making mistakes. It's, It's not about not sinning, that's not possible. It's not that you don't have dysfunction and that you don't have a past. Like that's what the Pharisees thought. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the Pharisees tried. And by the way, the Pharisees and their theology with Jesus were pretty much in line. And yet they did not understand this one idea. What Jesus is introducing is this. If you wanna know in this context what perfection and maturity looks like, it's this. Do good for those who cannot or will not do good for you. Go. What does it look like to be spiritually mature? Do good for those who cannot and won't do anything good for you. Go. Like that's what it means to be mature. One of the angst in me about so much of what I saw in terms of theology and church culture was people who were elevated as godly. They knew a lot of theology. They strapped mics to their heads and they spoke on stages. They knew tons about God. They could dispense all types of theology from the Old and New Testament. They knew all kinds of theological words like transubstantiation. They could go through the dispensations of scripture. They could unpack the three ways to interpret revelations. They knew all of it and everybody looked to them as if they were godly and yet simultaneously they were idiots and they didn't love anybody 
and they didn't care for anybody and they used their Bible and their theology as a weapon to beat other people over the head. And in this moment, Jesus is going, I'm redefining godliness. Listen to me. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how much theology you have. I don't care if you have an MDiv. I don't care if you've taught for 30 years. It means nothing. And in fact, in the words of Paul, it is rubbish. It is nothing if you do not model the heart and character of your Savior. So if you want to know what God likes looks like, if you want to know what godliness looks like, if you want to be like God, love people who can't and won't love you back, go. Doesn't even matter if you can speak the language, you know any of the verses, or you can find Leviticus in your Bible, you will be like God. You will model the heart of your Father in heaven. Do good for those who can't and won't do anything good for you. And Jesus modeled this everywhere he went. If you would just go through the gospel through this lens, it would shock you. Jesus one day speaks to a Samaritan woman. She was a woman who had no influence in culture. He should not have been talking to her. She was, again, so racially charged, considered as derogatory as this was, a half-breed in their culture. He stops specifically, sends his guys on ahead, and they are shocked that Jesus would spend time with this woman and in the process begin to tear down cultural walls that would fall soon after his resurrection. It was Jesus that was with a Roman centurion one day who asked him to stop and to heal his servant. He's a Roman centurion, as a Jewish person, he is an enemy. He does not deserve God's favor. He does not deserve God to do anything on his behalf. And God stops, gives attention. And by the way, Jesus was really, really busy at the moment. He was on his way to pay for the sins of the world. If ever there was a guy who had an excuse, this was the moment. And even liked, I mean, nobody else even liked the guy. The, the, his disciples are saying, you just need to move on. And Jesus stops, is present in the moment, and he makes a very important strategic point. They're invited in. And I want you to do good for those who can't and won't do anything good for you. I'm gonna heal your servant. And then one day he sees Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And he was on as outside as you could get. The guy had ripped off so many individuals. He was up in a tree because basically the whole religious system drove people like Zacchaeus on the fringes. Even though he wanted something from Jesus, he didn't think he was worthy. And Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house and everything changes. And then he meets Matthew, who is right in the middle of his tax collecting. And by the way, I don't know when Matthew gave up tax collecting. Jesus didn't say, leave your tax collecting and get things in order. Jesus said, I want you to follow me. And about three years in, Matthew finally believed that Jesus was who he said he was. It was Jesus who invited children up onto his lap in the middle of a talk when nobody else valued children, even healed Peter's mother-in-law. Maybe Peter was conflicted, I don't know, but I'm sure he loved his mother-in-law. That's a joke, and that was out of line. That was way out of line. And that will not be in the 11 a.m. Like he loved, I love my mother-in-law if she ever podcasts this. But every, everywhere he went, and, and if we're still not convinced, he gave away his physical life for sinners like you. People with your baggage. People with all my junk all the memories that haunt you, the stuff you can't get past, the, the shame that you've dealt with. And he says to us, and I think this is the thing, while we may always be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for how well we treat people. 
while we may always be criticized for what we believe. And come on, let's just be honest. We believe weird stuff. And it's another theological, I've done series about this. You can go, like, if it wasn't for Jesus' resurrection, there's, there's a bunch of that stuff to be intellectually honest. Like, I, I don't know. But when Jesus referenced it and then Jesus walked out of a grave alive, I've said this a thousand times, you gotta go with the guy that predicts his own death, resurrection, and pulls it off. Like, even if you have questions, you can lean in and be intellectually honest anyway. But come on, we believe really weird things that are only validated because we serve a resurrected savior. And we can, we can believe weird things all day long and that shouldn't scare us. Honestly, the way Jesus told us to treat other people is weird in our culture. But we should be famous for how we love and treat other people. It should be said of us. I, I don't know what's wrong with those people. I don't know why they believe this, but you should find one of them to marry. You should hire as many of them as they can. They are changing our community because they are unbelievably generous in a culture with so much division and so many walls and so much rhetoric and so much chaos and so much back and forth. It's like the Jesus followers are other. It's like they realize that there's something more to what is happening on planet earth, that like there's another kingdom. There's another way that somehow they're foreigners and strangers and this is not all there is. And so they spend all of their days not debating, not sharing, not retweeting, not getting in somebody else's face. They spend all of their days moving in the direction of their enemies and loving them, reaching out to their neighbors who they cannot stand. And we do not understand why they could believe and how they could believe what they believe. But there is nobody who treats other people like the Christians treat other people. That's what should be said of us. That's what we should be known for because, come on. That's what happened to Jesus. He was criticized for what he believed, but he could not deny what he did and how he treated other people. And so he says to you, he says to me, follow me. Follow me. Follow me into this. In a culture that says, what side am I on and how can I win? I want you to ask different questions. Who's my neighbor? Who's in need? How can I help? And so it's the whole reason we wanna ask this one singular question as followers of Jesus. What should we do and what should we be known for? And so I just wanna recap one more time. In the next two weeks, I'm gonna really dive into stuff. So make sure you're here. And I just wanna encourage you, make sure that you invite somebody. Every week's a perfect week to invite. This series is the perfect time to invite because everybody knows what the church, capital C, stands for or what the church, I should say, is against. We have an incredible opportunity to articulate what the church is for what the Jesus movement is about. This may be a great opportunity for people who have all kinds of barriers for good reason to go, you just need to come and see. You just need to check it out. But three things we wanna do in this series, give, serve, love. I mentioned at the beginning, um, some of you already have begun to give on October 3rd and 10th. We're gonna take up an offering around this and um, we don't ever do that because it's just weird and we don't need to and our church is so generous anyway and you give online and give in the boxes, but it's such a cool moment and all of you who have skepticism about the church wanting money, I've taken all of that away because we're giving every dollar of it away. I said last week, there's no shipping and handling. Like all of it is going to all of the organizations in our city. We want you 
to serve and give together as a family around these issues of food scarcity, homelessness, medical care, women's crisis issues, education. Um, scan that code, go to our website, look at specifically where we're giving this money. And every year you've overshot our goal. So I don't, if you do it again this year, we're ready for you. And we have a lot of incredible organizations vetted and ready to go. Um, and then serve day, October the 9th. And this is where we really wanna mobilize our church to come together and serve. And our hope is not that it would be a one day event. We're gonna do this about four times throughout the year. Our hope is you would come serve as a single, serve as a family, bring your kids. There's tons of projects on site, off site. They're specifically related to all of these community partners. And, and our heart is that this would grab your heart and that you would begin to maybe serve at some of these organizations like so many of our CCers, not out of compulsion, because this is what we've been called to do in our community. And I'm just gonna tell you one more time, this is also an incredible time to invite somebody. They don't have to come to church, they don't have to be a part of our church. It's an easy sell. Listen, we're just loving and serving our community. So I don't know what you've experienced in the name of Jesus. I don't know what has caused you to walk away over the last year and a half because the church as a whole has given you a lot of reasons, but you should just come and be a part of what we're doing in the community. And I'm just telling you, it has the power not just to change other people, to change you. Some of you, you need to get involved in serving right here. One of the things I love about our church is the stories that we hear every single week. And a lot of those stories were from people who would say, I've been following Jesus for 30 years, but a lot of them are from stories from people to go, I haven't been able to find my place in the church for about a decade and a half. And for the first time, I feel like it's safe. I feel like I belong. I feel like I'm loved. You need to be a part of that. You need to be a part of that bridge in serving and leading people from where they are to where Jesus wants to take them. And I believe our church has an incredible opportunity to do that. So we want you to serve. We want you to give. And I'm gonna talk about in the coming weeks how we're gonna love our neighbors in some really strategic ways. And I just think this is the most important thing that we can do. So every week, my kind of benediction is, Ready, set, go. Let's go give, let's go serve, let's go love, because this is what Jesus did. This is my heart for our church going forward. If you wanna know, what's your big strategic initiative? It's this. It's to mobilize people who are getting into community to want to love and apprentice with Jesus and then go out and change their community by being different, by being countercultural. I mean, you know this, I gotta end, but you know this, in the first century, the pantheon of gods, the Greco-Roman culture would look at injustice and lack of dignity and lack of intrinsic worth and they would go, it's just fate. It's how the gods work. And it was the Jesus followers that stood up at the expense of their life to go, mm -mm, all cultures are not equal. There's a superior culture that says there is something more powerful than fate. It's faith. The red yellow, black, white. They have intrinsic bestowed value because they're made in the image of their heavenly father. Go lead and love and live life like that. Do good for those who can't and won't do anything good for you. You ready? Would you stand with me? Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are. And God, I can't appropriately deliver the angst around this. So I'm asking, relying on leaning into your Holy Spirit to do what I cannot do. And in some cases, that is to encourage 
In other cases, it is to blow up this vision that you've already placed in our hearts. For others, it's to align with what you've already been working on in them and they haven't been able to take a step. It's for you to supernaturally empower where it requires a step of faith. For others, it's in your love and grace, never on the basis of shame or guilt, but in in terms of your love and grace to convict, to lead us into something new, to leave old patterns behind, and to step into the counter-cultural kingdom that you are calling us into. And Lord, I pray for us as a church, those way outside of these walls who listen and engage that you would do something in this. You uh, use an old school term that is completely relevant. You would, you'd bring about revival. We would decide to be different. I pray that we would go find enemies. We'd move in the direction of abusers. We'd hunt down those who are dividing walls. And we do everything in the name of Jesus to tear them down. And that you would do something significant in our city, in our community. And in some cases, there's some work that needs to be done in the homes that are represented here. And you would do it in the powerful name of Jesus. So we ask this and pray this in your incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.